Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this uh, Wednesday morning. I see Brendan signing on as well. Thanks, Brendan. And uh, we'll go through the, the protocols for this morning's webinar. As you can see, it's uh, a little more informal and uh, we intend to go over some of the basics, a little bit of a recap, and uh, just kind of get the discussion moving because I know you're all at various stages of either having reopened, reopening soon, or planning to reopen at some point in the next weeks, months, or what have you. And uh, we know you have questions. So to do that, rather than putting it in the chat, we ask that you use the Q&A function, as I see Lena has already done. And what we'll do is, uh, if things are not addressed directly in the course of the presentation, we will make sure that we deal with them in the Q&A period at the keep the questions coming and we will do our best to answer everything as always we will make our make this webinar available on our broadcast tab of our webpage at www.ccpartners.ca as well as on our youtube channel and we will make it available in podcast form as well which you can find through our webpage or through your normal podcast source, whatever that may be, SoundCloud, iTunes, what have you. We're everywhere. Um, so good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, what I believe is our eighth uh, webinar on COVID-related topics during this time. This one's a little less formal than we've, current, than we've done in the past, but hopefully nonetheless just as useful as every other one has been. So without further ado, I will get started by introducing our panelists this morning. My name is Kelsey Orth. If you don't know me, I'm a lawyer here at CC Partners. We are lawyers for employers. Our main office is in Brampton and we have satellite offices in Sudbury and Barrie. Uh, all we do is work for employers and uh, we have particular experience and expertise in the childcare sector, as many of you know, and we love to share that not only amongst you, but and from ourselves, but amongst ourselves, including getting a lot of participation from our attendees. And, and we certainly benefit from having a knowledgeable and experienced group who can share amongst yourselves your, your own experiences and own questions. And then from there, hopefully we can build a little bit of a, a knowledge base because people are often dealing with the same or similar issues. I won't use directions because everybody's screen looks different, but with me today are my colleague, Mike McClellan, my colleague, Christina Tomaino, and my other colleague, Charles Bins. I'm waiting in the wings. We have uh, Brendan Pennylegion from the auditing firm of Pennylegion Chung. And uh, Brendan, when, when the time is right, I'll, I'll throw it over to you for a couple of questions, perhaps. So this morning, we want to go over some of the basics. Um, and it's a, a brief and loose agenda. We're going to talk about some of the basics of accommodation. Charles is going to start us off there. Christina is going to review the leaves of absence available 
under the ESA and otherwise. And then we'll talk about some of the health and safety considerations. Uh, we know obviously that child cares have faced a huge mountain of administrative work to get back up and running. And so we'll talk about some of the health and safety considerations there. And then, uh, you know, thankfully we got that announcement uh, from the federal government about the wage subsidy program being extended to the end of December, but that doesn't necessarily end any concerns or thoughts or questions we may have about ongoing funding going forward, uh, especially when we don't know what September will look like from a school perspective or otherwise. So we can't promise you that we have all or even any of the answers, but we can promise you that we will have a discussion about it and get everybody thinking about what we need to know and, and what you need from us to be able to better prepare and better deal with all of the challenges that come with reopening during this pandemic and the ongoing uh, issues we'll face as things change toward the fall. So, Charles, why don't you uh, get us started, please, with a review of the basics of accommodation. Sure, and um, I think it's important to stress that when we're having this discussion about accommodation, you really only can have um, a conversation about the basics. Um, when it comes to accommodation, you really need to be able to treat every single situation on its own facts and treat every individual as an individual. Um, that being said, though, there are some kind of general overriding concerns and things that you should know and um, are likely to come up in this kind of situation. Um, so when it comes to accommodation, of course, we're talking about accommodation under the Human Rights Code. And when it comes to getting back into work after being off work, um, in the context of the global pandemic, generally two kinds of accommodation requests that you can expect uh, might come up. And so the first one, and probably the most obvious one, is disability-related accommodation requests. Um, so a lot of the questions we've been getting, and um, it is kind of confusing, and it's particularly for employees, um, some of the accommodation requests we've been getting, or questions we've been getting from employers center around employees who seek accommodation or are hesitant to come back to work maybe because they live with someone who is immunodeficient. Um, so, and that's kind of a term that's been kind of, you see it everywhere in the news, someone is immunodeficient. Um, so under the Human Rights Code, you have to remember that you are only obligated to provide accommodation for employees based on their disabilities under the the heading of disability accommodation. So if you have an employee who lives with someone who has an illness that might make them more susceptible to COVID um, and that person is hesitant to go outside the home because of that, that's not a human rights accommodation. So you don't have to go through the formal steps that you would for someone who's actually suffering from a disability themselves. That's a kind of scenario where you might have someone qualifying for a, a leave of absence under the Employment Standards Act, which is something that we'll address later on. Or you may just have to, you know, it's it's really it's tough on everyone. You, you may just have to work with employees to try and figure out solutions to this, you know, entirely impression. But that's that's not a human rights accommodation. Someone does not have a right to accommodation under the code because they're living with someone who's more susceptible to COVID. Now, if you're dealing with an employee who has a condition themselves that might make them more um, susceptible to um, contracting COVID or the effects of COVID, then you're dealing with um, obligations under. So 
Something you have to remember though, is that employees also have obligations under the human rights code. So they have obligations first and foremost to alert you to the fact that they have a disability. And secondly, to provide sufficient medical information to substantiate that disability and provide it with enough detail to allow you to actually perform an analysis. So it may not be as difficult as it relates to COVID, because I suspect in most cases, if someone has an underlying condition that's going to make them more susceptible, the appropriate accommodation would be time away from work. Um, how long that needs to last, um, what other kinds of parameters might need to be put in place, kind of um, you certainly would not be required to just have someone off work indefinitely um, with, you know, for years and years until, you know, the virus is eradicated. That would be unreasonable. But um, with other accommodations, other things can be done. So um, I guess the main takeaway is even though it's likely that time off will be the reasonable accommodation here, make sure that you're treating each case individually because there may be other steps that you can take short of time away from the workplace. In Charles, I've got a quick question for you, and sorry for interrupting. Yeah. And obviously in our webinar today, you know, we can't give individual legal advice on questions that come up, but a real common question and something that we have to address in every accommodation case is what kind of information uh, we should be trying to get from an employee who says they need time off work or some kind of an accommodation in general terms um, what what are you recommending to clients on uh, requests for a, a covid related accommodation yeah that's a good excellent question so in general the type of um, information you can expect the detail that you can expect from an employee will kind of increase as things progress so the longer an accommodation goes on the more I guess, um, rigorous or intense the accommodation measure, the more likely it is that you're going to be entitled to more detailed information. Now, that being said, certain types of information they're almost never going to be entitled to. So you're not necessarily going to be getting, you know, a diagnosis of whatever it is the employee is dealing with. What you're looking for are what the restrictions are. So obviously, when it comes to most kinds of physical disabilities, you can expect, you know, lifting restrictions, walking restrictions. Um, sitting restrictions, that kind of thing. When it comes to an underlying illness that might make you more susceptible to COVID, like I said, probably the accommodation is, is going to be time off, but that doesn't mean that you just have to accept a note that says this employee needs time off. You can have some information about what the prognosis is, for example, whether it's something that the employee is going to be dealing with on an indefinite basis, or whether it's something kind of transitory that might allow them to come back into the workplace before the pandemic is over. So th that type of detail, if it relates to their ability to do their job and how long an accommodation is going to be necessary, you're absolutely entitled to ask for that information. And we would advise in just about every case uh, that you actually seek that information. Um, and then again, so that, that all, the, the main focus, if you take one thing away from this, it's that you have to take each case on its own facts. And so it's part of your obligation to establish the facts and it's part of the employee's obligation. So to alert you to the fact that and let you know what it is has to be to decide whether or not. They, um, so there's all kinds of difficult issues that can come up with respect to accommodating specific cases. Um, and we're happy to advise on individual cases, you know, in a more, you know, not a webinar kind of format. And, um, so the other claim that people can maybe expect to see that's not disability 
would be a potential family status claim. So this might be an area where maybe you do have someone that you're living with that has a medical condition that makes them susceptible to COVID um, and you are in, you know, required in some way to care for them in a way that impacts your ability to be at work. So again, this kind of overlaps with the, the ESA leaves that Christine is gonna talk about a little bit later, but there's a couple important things you need to understand about family status claims. So the first is that family status defined, as defined under the act deals with a parent-child relationship. So if a workplace rule or um, workplace requirements interfere with someone's relationship with their brother or their uncle or a close friend, whatever it is, that is not going to qual qualify under a family status claim. It has to be the parent-child relationship. So either something that's interfering with their responsibilities to their children or to their parents. And then the other thing to know about family status claims is that even though the law is a little bit, it's not quite settled in this case um, in terms of what an employee has to prove in order to have a successful family status claim, it does have to be some sort of fundamental uh, responsibility or obligation in the parent-child relationship. So something trivial, if it's so the most common case is you know, if you've got to take your kid to soccer practice or you would prefer your kid to be in a certain type of care or whatever you, that, that's not going to be enough to find um, a need for family status accommodation. It has to be something more than that. So like a legal responsibility or something that will affect the health and well-being of your child or parent as the case may be. Um, so the family status claims they can be difficult, obviously, because we're talking about daycare, because usually the big problem here is with childcare. Um, if someone is unable to find childcare for their kid and their kid is young enough or um, has needs that require the parent to look after them at home, then that's where you're going to see possible family status claims. And again, they can be very difficult. These ones are very, very fact specific in terms of what you can do, what kind of be provided. Um, so we really do suggest getting is if you have an employee. Um, and then finally with that, so just like disability, um, you do have certain rights in respect of a family status claim. So you can expect to be given the same kind of information about what exactly it is about the workplace that's interfering with this relationship and, you know, certain kind of parameters, you know, whether it's shift schedules or days of the week that someone can't work, that's all information that you can expect for a family status. Claim. Um, so as I was saying, these are the human, these are the very strict kind of human rights accommodation questions and they're, they can be very difficult and they have very strict guidelines, but obviously they do overlap with other types of, we'll just call them general accommodations, which is um, leaves of absence, whether that be through the Employment Standards Act, through a collective agreement, through a contract, whatever the case may be. So um, with that, I'll just pass it over to my colleague, Christina, to kind of go over those, what's out there and what you can expect to hear from employees in that regard. Thanks, Charles. Um, so hi everyone. In terms of the Employment Standards Act and the statutory leaves, the big one that I'm sure everyone has heard about, um, whether that's here on one of our webinars or just on the news, is the Infectious Disease Emergency. And that was passed in mid-March of this year to provide job-protected leave for employees who are off work for reasons related to COVID-19. So that can be caring for a family member, uh, because they're in quarantine or self-isolation, or the big one, um, if they have childcare needs because of daycare closures, school closures, things of that nature. So that was first introduced. And then what we saw was an evolution 
where we have these deemed leaves now. So if an employee uh, has been put on a layoff because the workplace is closed due to COVID-19, that has been deemed to be not a layoff, uh, but in fact a job protected leave under the ESA. So that's coming up if there is any reduction in the employee's hours of work or earnings as a result of COVID-19. So you can have staff who are still working to some extent. Uh, so I know a lot of centers have employees for the moment, say doing some video chats with parents, uh, doing some program planning activities, things of that nature. Uh, but if their salary or their hours have been reduced, they do qualify for that leave even if they're still working, uh, which, is, which is odd and has been difficult for employers to navigate. So these measures are retroactive and will continue until six weeks after uh, the emergency declaration is lifted. So this has been called the COVID-19 period. So what we've been telling employers to this point and what I'm sure you've heard uh, on other of our webinars is that once the emergency declaration is lifted, you start the countdown six weeks to allow employers to gradually reopen, take those health and safety measures that they need to be taking, and then the leave ends. And if employees are still off work, it transitions into an ordinary layoff. Now, what we've seen this past week that does impact that is there has been a new piece of legislation tabled, and that is, I believe it's called the Reopening Ontario 2020 Act. And what that does is it proposes to allow the provincial government to extend emergency orders past the emergency declaration period. And that would include orders related to the workplace. So presumably that could include the infectious disease emergency leave and the, uh, the deemed leave provisions that we've been seeing. So we'll need to wait on that and see what further developments we get um, as to whether the leave is deemed to continue once the emergency order is lifted. But for now, I think we're, we're safe to say uh, still waiting those six weeks once we get past the emergency leave period. Now, there are other leaves under the ESA, and I'll just give a very brief overview um, since we are doing more of an informal discussion today. So there are other leaves that may come up and that may be relevant. Uh, so there's, say, family caregiver leave, critical illness leave, things of that nature. You may be seeing those from employees depending on the particular circumstances, but I think the key really is that infectious, infectious disease emergency leave that's going to be uh, most relevant for most employers. So just making sure that you're keeping mindful of those requirements and those employees who may be entitled to a leave. So for example, you know, you're, everyone here is a child care center, uh, but that doesn't mean that your employees don't also have child care needs of their own. And we've all seen the difficulties with reopening. So it may very well be a situation where even though the employee works in a child care center, they may not have access to child care. So that's something we do still need to navigate as we continue. Thanks, Christina. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> so the next topic we had on our on our list was the health and safety considerations. And as we know, the certainly the child care sector has probably the most stringent, um, perhaps next to the healthcare sector, but in terms of the businesses that are reopening at this time, probably one of the most stringent sets of requirements and not a lot of 
true precedent or even real feedback coming, as I understand it, from the public health authorities. Um, in terms of additional health and safety considerations, one thing that I thought of, and I'll ask any of, of my fellow panelists to weigh in here, is if you've got someone who doesn't feel comfortable, uh, and when I say someone, I'm talking about an employee, of course, who doesn't feel comfortable, what steps should an employer take to kind of get to the next stage of either requiring the employee to come back, having the employee on a leave, or, um, you know, or accommodating the employee, or is there something else we can do, i.e. some kind of discipline or job abandonment? I know we've talked about it before in the abstract, but now we have actually people coming back and or saying they can't come back. Um, anybody have any thoughts on that they want to share? Kelsey, I think it's really going to depend on each individual circumstance and case. Um, if it is simply a matter of an employee being nervous about returning, uh, but they're not um, subject to any particular health restraints or childcare restraints that would qualify them for uh, the, the statutory leave, they don't necessarily have a right uh, to refuse to come to work. Um, now, if they think that the workplace is unsafe, there are mechanisms under the Occupational Health and Safety Act at any time for an employee to trigger a work refuse. There are steps that are prescribed and set out under the Occupational Health and Safety Act in Ontario that would require an investigation to be done, uh, an investigation to be done internally to determine whether it is in fact an unsafe workplace. And if the uh, outcome of the investigation is there is no hazard preventing this person from working safely, they either return to work or they escalate their complaints to the Ministry of Labor, who would then have to come in and do their investigation. And if, if the Ministry of Labor finds there is, in fact, a hazard, then they would issue an order to the employer to address it. And if not, they would tell the employee there is no hazard here. You don't have, under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, a, a right to be refusing work. The employee then has to make the, make the choice, return to work because they don't have a particular right not to, or refuse. And if they refuse, then absolutely, they could be subject to discipline. Um, possibly, you know, in a case where an employee just says, I, you know, I'm just not comfortable coming, and, and they're not asserting any particular right not to come back, but they're saying they don't want to. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, and, and the employer is requiring them to, to return to work as they normally would. The normal rules apply. If, if a person is refusing to do their work, they may well be subject discipline. But I would caution employers in this climate to try to be practical as well. I have had certain clients, including in the daycare setting, uh, based on the restrictions of how many people are allowed back in the workplace. If somebody says, hey, I don't feel comfortable coming back, actually kind of solves a problem for them. Um, so there's, there's clearly nothing preventing uh, an employer and an employee from agreeing to a leave of absence. You know, a leave of absence doesn't always have to be statutorily mandated. It could just be something that that is agreed between employer and employee. Um, so, so you know, my general advice is take a look at each situation individually and and see what makes sense in the circumstances, in terms of you know, how much pushback we're going to give or, or or how badly we need the person to come back to work. Versus, you know, is this kind of a practical 
solution to to the fact that we can't have a fully staffed workplace at, at the moment. So those are kind of my two cents. And I'll just jump in quickly, um, just touching on on what Charles told us about earlier. I think it's also important for employers if you're getting that communication from an employee that they're uncomfortable um, and they may not be identifying that they have an entitlement to a leave or to an accommodation. I think it really is important for employers to take that extra step and do some digging. Uh, we have a great screening tool that we've developed for our daycare clients so reach out to one of us um, if that's something that you'd be interested in but that helps kind of identify issues that may trigger those protected leave entitlements or an accommodation. So as employers, everyone here is well aware and very familiar with the various um, ways that employees need to properly access a leave or an accommodation, but most employees are not as familiar. So what we don't want to see is perhaps um, circumstances playing out where employers do eventually take a line and say, okay, well, if you're not returning, then we've deemed you to have resigned. And then you get a claim that has accommodation elements that they were not accommodated for X, Y, Z. Um, and the employer sitting there thinking, well, you didn't raise any of this and that would have been a different story. So just especially as Mike said, in this climate, make sure you're taking those extra steps, digging a little deeper, seeing where that discomfort is coming from and addressing it accordingly. Yeah, and I think finally, just to you know, cross the T's and dot the I's, the final, because I've dealt with, situations in the past different context obviously where you have an employee who is having an issue or just needs some time off work or whatever the case may be and the employer's happy to give them time off and then the employee's just kind of sitting out there um you know away from work and then something happens down the road and then there's a bit a dispute about you know whether they're on this leave or is it an esa leave or is it a sick leave or whatever the case may be so whenever you're having a conversation with an employee about this you definitely want to make sure that you're following up it can just be an email but something in writing says on this date we had this discussion we talked about you using this leave or um, you mentioned you were concerned and we talked about getting some medical information whatever the case may be so because unfortunately especially in this climate which is kind of um, likely to result in certain types of litigation it's not enough to be reasonable you have to be able to show later that you were reasonable. So it's always important to be getting this stuff on paper and creating a paper trail. Thank you, everyone. Um, Charles, while I have you front of, uh, top of mind, so to speak, we have a question that came in says, under the family status claim, if an employee needs to be away due to a child's health and their underlying condition, uh, is there a maximum length of time they can be on leave from work? And this may be something chime in on as well, but in terms of those specific types of claims and, and or leaves. I think, I mean, obviously we need more specific information in terms of what the specific condition, what the leave length would be, but in a general sense, can you address that for us? Yeah, so I guess the answer there is kind of a yes and a no. So um, obviously when you're dealing with any kind of accommodation, you only your only obligation is to accommodate up to the point of undue hardship. So if you have a family status claim, you know, it doesn't matter what the fact situation is, but an indefinite family status claim that, you know, really fundamentally affects the employee's ability to fulfill their role, which is to provide labor in exchange for, um, for a wage, then there is going to be a limit to how long you will be required 
to accommodate someone if it rises to the point of undue hardship. That being said, there's no hard and fast rule about it'll be six months, a year, it'll be two years. It's all going to depend on the situation, um, meaning, you know, what the family status claim is based on, uh, what type of employee they are, what they're doing, the nature of your operation, how big or small, or how easy it is for you to accommodate the specific type of accommodation. So, so really depends on the circumstances, but you won't necessarily be required to institute an accommodation forever, but you will likely have to do it for some time before you'll be able to make a Thanks, Charles. And obviously, I could, I, yeah, I just want to tack on something to that. And it's a little bit technical, but there are time limits under the Employment Standards Act for job protected leaves for things like a family caregiver leave. That is separate and apart from the employer's duty to accommodate. So even though the Employment Standards Act gives a defined amount of time that this is the maximum amount of time in a calendar year you're allowed to take off on a family caregiver reason, uh, Human rights and, and the duty to accommodate is a separate animal. Uh, as Christina alluded to, you know, the, the duty to accommodate is, is a process uh, and it's very individual. So uh, yeah, Charles is right. And, and I just wanna be clear that although the Employment Standards Act puts uh, maximums on the leaves, uh, we also have to be concerned with our duty to accommodate process uh, as a matter of human rights as opposed to Thanks, Mike. I was just going to make that point myself that there are two separate requirements. Um, while we're talking about still the health and safety considerations, one of the questions that came in that I think we can weave into this is one of our attendees has um, someone who is an employee who's disclosed that she has allergies that manifest with all the symptoms related to COVID-19, a cough, you know, runny nose or watering eyes, some nausea at times, and they suspect that uh, she'll fail the screening on most days. And then if she passes the screening, she may at some point during the day display those symptoms um, and, and be sent home. Either of those scenarios, whether she fails or whether she um, passes and then gets sent home would, would trigger public health reporting. And then that closes the, the whole cohort group for isolation until she gets a test or until she's gone for 14 days. What can an employer do for something like that? Is it is it possible to prevent that employee from working or is there some kind of clearance that, uh, that they can get? So I'll jump in. Um, I don't think there's a, a clearance per se that you can get because you could be coughing because of an allergy one day and the next day you could be coughing because of COVID and there's really no way to be sure unless there's consistent testing done. Uh, my advice, which may be on the conservative side, is uh, as an employer, you have obligations to maintain the health and safety of the entire workplace, and you have designed screening tools in order to ensure that health and safety. And if there are symptoms identified as being triggers, um, where a person who has a cough, a runny nose, things of that nature are not permitted into the workplace, I, I, I think that, you know, the safest bet is to say, okay, you know, I understand that you're saying that you have um, allergies and maybe bring us some medical. We'll see what we can do. We'll consider it in that process, as Mike was discussing, making sure that we're taking all the steps that we need to. Uh, but I think as an employer, it's difficult to make that call that, okay, you know, I trust that this employee, whenever she's coughing is because of allergies. And, and frankly, no one can know that or, or say that for certain. 
Um, so it might be in this case that the employee just can't pass the screening process and, and can't return to work. So in a case like that, there may be options, I think, of, you know, for example, can the employee do productive work from home? Um, so maybe, maybe they can come back to work, but they just can't, can't come back to the physical workplace. I mean, when, when I hear this scenario, one thing that concerns me is possibly setting a, a, a precedent, right? So, you know. Yes, we, Christina, you're there, uh, for some, some reason, Mike froze there, and uh, I think a couple of our uh, attendees noticed that. Mike, are you still there? Are you still with us? So, sorry everyone, a little technical difficulties there. Um, thanks for pointing that out. I think uh, there's always that unknown when you're on these things and something freezes. Is it, is it me or is it you? Uh, in that case, I think it was us, but I think we're back now. Um, Mike, are you available to carry on with your comments? Perhaps not. Okay, so the the question and Christina, thank you for for your answer on that, and we'll come back to Mike whenever he's ready to continue with his comments. Um, I wanted to get back to some of the other uh, questions that we've compiled. Let me just see here where we were at. So that was the the one about allergy. Um, we've had a couple with respect to the what happens when someone is on a leave, whether they're I think it's been termed a couple of different ways in the questions that we've received, whether they're on a, on accommodation or a leave. But perhaps um, Christina and or Charles, you can tell us the questions we're getting are what happens with the employee's benefits or seniority? What what accrues? What doesn't during one of those leaves? So I'll jump in for the infectious disease emergency leave. Um, and, and I'll preface this with for unionized centers, uh, always be sure to be looking to your collective agreement first and foremost to see if there's any provisions that specify what does and does not continue during a leave. Uh, so the language may say that seniority does continue to accrue, so that will be very case specific. Uh, for the infectious disease emergency leave, there's a, an interesting nuance where typically if you're on a statutory leave, benefits are required to be continued. But because of the deemed leave aspect where employees who had previously been on a temporary layoff were transitioned by the legislation into being on a protected leave, uh, there is some nuance there. So if employees had been on a layoff and they were not being provided with continued benefits during that layoff, at the time that the leave was introduced, uh, then you do not need to continue benefits for the duration of the leave. If benefits had been continued up until that point, then they are required to be continued. And let me just get the exact date. Uh, I believe it was May 29th is the pivot point. Uh, and if I'm wrong, I'll jump back in and, and correct myself. And then, yeah, just as it relates to... Um benefits continuation or seniority accrual for someone who's off on an accommodation kind of leave, the answer is going to depend on the nature of the benefit that you're talking about. So for example, um, if the benefit is earned on the basis of work performed, so that can, you know, um, especially if you have collective agreements, there's probably language in there about this. Um, and the employee, as part of their accommodation, is away from the workplace, then it's not discriminatory because you're not treating them any different. They're not getting the benefit because they're not performing work. If you're dealing with the benefit 
that has to do with or is available to employees merely because of their status as an employee, then it will have to continue if they're away from work and style leave. So you really have to focus in on how this benefit is earned or why it's provided to do that analysis. Thank you both for that. Um, <clears throat> so a couple of questions now about returning to work. Um, we have one saying an employee can't return to work because he or she is relying on childcare from their parents. Their parents are coming from China. Don't know when they're going to be able to arrive due to travel restrictions. How do you, how do you term this? Is this a family status accommodation or is this uh, potentially one of the ESA leaves with respect to childcare due to COVID? Yeah, so it, it can be both. You don't necessarily have to hive them off into two separate streams. So if we just assume that they qualify for family status, which the whole other question unto itself, if they qualify for family status, but they also qualify for leave under the ESA, then as part of your, you know, in that case, you still do have a duty to accommodate. It's just that the duty to accommodate lines up with a leave that's already available to them. So to the extent that that leave is available, then it's an easy, it's, you know, that's the easiest kind of case of accommodation. If we get to a point where the, their entitlement to the leave evaporates, but they still have a family status claim, then it would be time to do kind of a fresh analysis based on their family status claim and try and figure out what an appropriate And just jumping in quickly, sorry, Kelsey, to uh, just make sure we're keeping health and safety front and center. Uh, if employees are relying on childcare, or if they have family members who are traveling to stay with them for other reasons and they're traveling from outside of Canada, uh, we want to make sure when we're doing our screening that we're taking into consideration whether someone in the household has been outside of Canada uh, because that may attract the 14-day self-isolation period. So just to make sure that all our uh, boxes are checked in that respect. Thanks, Christina. On, on that subject, in terms of childcare and childcare as an issue, for creating that entitlement to a job protected leave under section 50.1. Um, we have a question saying, look, we have staff members who use other centers or have care outside of their own center. So many daycares obviously offer childcare to their employees uh, under some kind of arrangement, but many employees either don't have that option or don't take advantage of that option. So if they don't have care, can they still uh, avail themselves of that job protected leave? I think the answer is yes. But what about if the daycare itself, where they work, their employer has a space for their child and they still refuse? How does that uh, play out in, in your view? I mean, obviously, this is something that we're going to kind of discuss because there's no hard and fast rule. But what are uh, what are other people's thoughts on? That? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I don't know that we have a clear answer on that. So on its face, if there is childcare available, and specifically as the employer, and it's unique because it's a childcare center, and you can say, you can have this spot for your child, um, that does complicate the issue. But then again, what we are seeing, um, and what all of you are seeing much more than we are, is that parents are hesitant to return their child to a childcare center. Uh, you know, I've heard some centers, they have, you know, two or three kids who have opted to return even though there's been a reopening. So I do think that strictly speaking, um, they are likely disentitled from the leave if childcare is available to them and being offered. Um, but I think, and, and touching on a couple of things we've discussed, 
there does need to be some uh, sensitivity and some practicality in understanding that employees may be hesitant to put their child in a child care center, even if they work in a child care center. So that may just be something to navigate to assure the employee these are the health and safety precautions we take, not just for employees, but also for the children. Why don't you come back for a week, see how it is, see if you're comfortable bringing the child and reassess. Uh, so I think working with the employee is really critical, but strictly speaking, it's difficult with the lead. Thanks, Christina. I, I, I would tend to agree with you there. I think, um, you know, there may be some litigation around this in future if, you know, we go, because we heard earlier that if somebody doesn't return and all other indications are that they could and should return and the employer takes a position of job abandonment, you know, what is an employee going to do? Well, they may well make a claim for wrongful dismissal or uh, file a grievance if it's in a unionized setting saying, you can't force me to put my child in care. Um, however, I think, you know, in any circumstance, that's going to be looked at from a, is that reasonable approach? And sure, you can't force an employee to put their child in care of that particular center under normal circumstances. But in, in the current circumstances, when the employee is needed and they're saying, I don't have childcare, and you're solving that problem for them with all of the precautions in place, um, and it's a, you know, potentially a temporary thing until their own care situation is sorted out, I, I tend to think that they'd have a hard time making that, uh, that claim succeed, right? I think something that employers need to keep in mind and something that probably employees and their unions need to learn is that uh, the duty to accommodate, the, the accommodation itself, uh, the employee who's entitled to accommodation is entitled to reasonable accommodation. They're not entitled to necessarily their preferred accommodation. They're not entitled to the ultimate perfect accommodation. They are entitled to what is reasonable. And if they refuse what is reasonable, then they are not participating in the accommodation process. And an employer in certain circumstances may be able to treat accommodation as at an end and uh, you know, require the employee to, to work by the normal employment terms that they would have. It is a tricky situation. It's one of those things that ought to be considered on the individual merits of each individual circumstance. But um, you know, just, just a caution to employers, don't don't be, uh, you know, duped into believing that uh, if you can't provide the ultimate perfect uh, accommodation that the employee is seeking, that you're breaching your human rights obligations. You're not. It's the reasonable accommodation that we're looking for. Thanks, Mike. That makes sense. And even if it's not strictly accommodation in the normal sense of the duty to accommodate, that is the reasonable approach that I was getting at. And uh, framing it in those terms from the legal doctrine of accommodation makes sense, I think, circumstance. So sticking with the theme of refusals to return, uh, no doubt many of you have heard this in terms of our, uh, our operators, but uh, we have a specific question saying, look, seven out of the nine staff that I need back still want to take all of their holiday time between the return in August and the end of the calendar year in December. And uh, simply put, you need them back. What do we do? Some employees say they already have things booked. Um, they're not coming back because they're going to incur financial penalties because they have those things booked. Um, 
personally, uh, I would say tough luck. The fact that the daycare has not been open is not free for all in terms of don't ever expect to work again, but it is complicated by the fact that they may have had that vacation booked. Thoughts on, on how this particular center or any center might deal with those kinds of of argument. So I'll jump in on that one. Um, so first of all, as an employer under the Employment Standards Act, you can schedule vacation time. So you can say, you know, you are taking vacation time this week. Um, give some reasonable notice that the vacation time will be scheduled. And that's sort of the, the practical baseline is you can schedule vacation time. It, it does get more complicated when there are pre-scheduled things or pre-booked vacation. Um, you know, I do tend to agree with Kelsey and to some extent as well, you know, circumstances have changed since the vacation was booked uh, and everyone needs to be reasonable in accepting the limitations that that puts on the operation and on the ability to take, you know, huge amounts of vacation time when the center is trying to open up. Um, on a more practical note, I'd also just want to be careful in navigating that issue if employees have something booked and they had booked the vacation in advance say before covid they had come and told you in february that they need a week off they're going to a cottage um, just from a morale perspective and making sure that you know the employee isn't going to be uh, disengaged and you know become a disruptive force in the workplace because they're angry about the vacation so not to say you need to give in but just something to consider as you navigate there's a, kind of a corollary to what Christina was saying about employers have the right to book vacation. Uh, the, the way I read the Employment Standards Act, employers have the right to book vacation for their employees because they have the obligation to ensure that employees get their vacation time that is allotted to them under the Employment Standards Act. I think that's really the, the way it has to work. It, you, you really do have to jump through hoops to, for an employee to be able to uh, decline to take their vacation time. The Ministry of Labor actually has <clears throat> standards in, in a process where, you know, if you don't get authorization from the director of the employment standards branch of the Ministry of Labor, and an employee doesn't take their vacation time that they're entitled to under the Employment Standards Act, you as the employer are going to be liable for that or may be liable for it. So, at minimum, the employees need to be taking their statutory minimum vacation entitlements. Now, if the center is closed, uh, a, a strategy that we have been implementing either with the employee's agreement or by mandate, uh, they can take their paid vacation time during the closure. And, you know, yeah, it's going to for some employees not be optimal because they're not working anyway, so why should they have to take vacation time? Um, but there's, there's nothing preventing um, either statutorily, and unless you have a, a policy in place that sets out a specific separate process for scheduling vacation time or a collective agreement that uh, displaces the presumptive management rights to schedule vacation time. That is an option. Do it before the reopening so that you won't have as many people trying to take as much vacation time upon reopening. Um, and you, you, sure, if we reopen in, in August and September and a bunch of people want to take their vacation time 
right away because that's what when the weather is going to be nicest for them to uh, have some some relaxing leisure time. Um, you know, again, unless you have binding policies or a collective agreement saying otherwise, uh, you as the employer, you get to schedule it. So you don't have to uh, schedule vacation immediately upon reopening. Um, but I would certainly agree and agree with Christina and echo what she's saying about, um, you know, kind of like accommodation and leaves of absence. Take each case as it comes, uh, be, be reasonable and, and manage not only your business and, and your operations, but also morale of the employees, because let's face it, that's also a part of managing your business and your operations. Thanks, Mike. And that brings to mind a question, and it's a bit of a jumping off point because we're not now talking about planned vacations, but rather people seeking vacation or seeming to seek vacation. And uh, it's not a question that's come through the Q&A today, but certainly one that I've received from a a few daycare operators already. and, And many of you out there may be getting the same kind of pushback from employees when you say, here's my recall, and whether they've got the cottages booked or Otherwise, they say, okay, fine, you're not going to give me my vacation. Uh, Well, I'm going to avail myself of one of the other leaves. And you know what, I'm going to take a medical leave um, because I'm not there. Now, obviously, we know how to challenge that medical information. But what about an employee who says, uh, you know, I can't, I've got, I'm immunocompromised, or for whatever reason, I don't feel safe coming back. And I've I've got a medical note, but I'll be back in September. Uh, I've had a few of those, and I'll tell you what you know kind of has happened with the clients that I've been dealing with on that is that we've said, okay, well, there's no guarantee, you know, we fine and good for you to take the leave and you've got medical information and that's fine. We will honor that, but uh, we can't guarantee anything for you in September because we don't know when conditions will change. And if you're saying you're immunocompromised and the, the current restrictions in place aren't enough, then we really don't know when you may be able to come back and we're not going to give you that blanket time. Anybody else had any experience with that thus far or different scenario? Again, as Mike said, we, we deal with each one of them in its own way, but there have certainly been this, the cynics among us would say people trying to get away with things, having it come back to bite them when they show the medication thinking they're a month off and realize that perhaps may not have any work to come back to for some time, the conditions. Yeah, I haven't had any experience with that, Kelsey, but it does kind of link in with kind of what I was talking about before um, in terms of what employers can expect in terms of medical information. Um, so you want to make sure, like, I'm sure all four of us have seen it a thousand times, employee comes with a note that says um, employee can't come to work until such and such a date, no further information. If you're going to be, if you're going to be making a claim based on a you know nondescript immunodeficiency, um, but you're going to be allowed to come back at a certain date, that doesn't really make any sense because um, you will need some more information about whether is this a temporary condition, is it a chronic condition, is it something that could change. So those are the kind of bits, kind of nuances where you, if an employee gives you a note like that, it might look good on its face. It might, it might say they have, you know, this condition, but they'll be back to work at this state, but it doesn't really make any sense. So that's an area where you can kind of push back. You can ask questions of the employee and you could even have them go back to their doctor to get a more detailed note um, explaining why it is this date 
And is it going to go beyond that date or is this a temporary kind of thing? So it's those little areas where you can push back. And then again, like I mentioned before, to the extent that you're having these discussions and you're asking employees to go back and get more information, make sure you follow up with something in writing just to ensure that you have a record of what it is that you talked about, something that you can fall back on later. Thanks, Charles. That's that's very important. We we still, even in these different and challenging times, have the ability as an employer to push back when we do get, uh, as you said, the, the nondescript or the vague medical information. Certainly that, that helps. Um, I have uh, a couple more um, questions to get to, but before we, we do that, I, I want I did want to briefly address the, the whole funding topic. So Obviously, uh, everyone knows that the wage subsidy has now been extended into December, um, and that's great because obviously it allows employers to continue operating, notwithstanding the fact that your revenue from attendance at your centers is certainly not what it was, um, whether by choice or by simple operation of the, the new restrictions in place and, and you know most of us probably fall somewhere in between. Um, I also suspect that as uh, you get closer to reopening, if you've already if you haven't already experienced it, you will, whereby the number of clients who initially respond to your survey saying, yeah, absolutely, I'm in as soon as you open, uh, kind of gets reduced. I know I had one client I was with whom I was speaking the other week, who in the initial survey had 70 families interested and they're opening next week with about 26 instead. So um, those kinds of things will happen, but what does that mean? Um, we've got the wage subsidy, we've got the top-up funding from the city of uh, Toronto, if you're a Toronto-based uh, uh, daycare and, and other jurisdictions doing similar things, but Will this be sustainable going forward? And I raise it because we don't know. And I know Brendan uh, is here, and you know the only thoughts we have at this point are, well, this at least allows us to to kick it down the road a little bit. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of issues around the, the funding and the funding and so on. But you know, I'd, I'd agree with you, Kelsey, on that. Um, I would just say in the last uh, last couple of days, there's obviously been two encouraging. Um, really encouraging announcements, one being the extension of the emergency wage subsidy up to the end of December, and the other being the increase of the child cohort from 10 to 15. So uh, the immediate impact of the extension of the emergency wage subsidy is that it, uh, you know, it does kick the can down the road a little bit, but it, it provides absolutely uh, critical and essential funding backstop for childcare centers moving forward. Without this announcement, things were really up in the air. Um, I don't think childcare would be viable without that funding. Um, I think we can probably thank um, uh, Trudeau's um, foray with We Charity for the early announcement of this particular funding. I don't think it's normally in the style of any level of government to get ahead of a topic like this, um, but the, um, we can all maybe just send a nice letter to the Kielbergers uh, for, for getting some information a bit early. Um, what isn't known now is whether or not this, how this funding is going to be coordinated with, with the province and with the city. Uh, hopefully, uh, I can check back in with you later in the summer just to sort of see how that has um, shaken out. 
Um, one of the things that this does provide now for a lot of childcare centers, um, this queues extension is um, for those centers who are currently sitting on the sideline um, and have been thinking about not reopening because because the the landscape still is a little bit um, un, unsteady. This now does give uh, centers the opportunity to to use the rest of the summer as a bit of a training ground, a practical sort of um, entry into providing childcare in a in a COVID uh, environment. Um, you know whether you want to call it a pilot project or not, but at least it gives you uh, the ability to train your staff um, and know that you're going to be reimbursed for a substantial amount of your salary, which is really the biggest cost. Uh, boards can also do some. Uh, you know, some back of envelope budgeting as well now, um, at least up to the end of the year. Um, you know, with the with the increase of uh, the cohort, that you know dramatically increases the the center's ability to generate revenue. Uh, to your point, Kelsey, it's quite possible that the the, the demand may not be there. Um, anecdotally speaking, with childcare operators, uh, I've heard that that side of the spectrum. I've also heard the the side of the spectrum where the parents are picketing outside trying to get their kids out of the house. So, um, and there's no room for them. So we'll, we'll see how that, that works out. Um, but generally speaking, uh, I would say that in spite of these two large announcements, there's still a fair amount unknown and I'll be happy to check back in with you folks later on when we get more sort of black and white, uh, wording around how the funding is going to mesh between the province and the feds. Uh, going forward. Also, let's just see how childcare works this summer, you know, um, from a public health perspective. Uh, I think that's still going to going to going to drive things. Thanks, Brendan. That's uh, that's appreciated. And just before I, uh, I let you go, because I have some thoughts and comments to make piggybacking off of what you just said with respect to how childcare works this summer. But um, there's a quick question there about the wage subsidy. Is it uh, is, it, is it the same rules in place for the wage subsidy moving forward as have been in place since it was introduced? Or do we know if there are any modifications to it yet? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it's so new and, and that is a, a definite question mark at the moment is, is it going to operate exactly as it is now? Or will they tweak some of the regulations? Um, uh, we got uh, a, you know a fairly high level announcement from Trudeau without a lot of detail, which has been a regular page out of his playbook. So I, I think some of the, uh, the, the, the proof will come out a bit later. Oh, you, you beat me to the punch there in terms of saying the, the regular MO of, of these announcements has been making a, a grand announcement and then uh, kind of let people start trying to figure it out and complaining and then figuring out after that. Um, I see Lisa uh, has commented there that the announcement did note that it's supposed to be less restrictive, which which is great if that's the case. Of course, we still in practice. Returning to what Brennan had said, and I wanted to piggyback the comment about how childcare will work. I mean, one of the the things looming for us all as childcare operators, as advisors, and uh, or as parents is what happens in the fall. We've got increased cohorts for daycare. That's great. We've got the possibility, at least, of some kind of hybrid model of schooling. And how is that going to affect daycare when we've got, you know, say we have the one day on, one day off requirements for schooling. And what happens to those kids in the meantime? Do they go into daycare and face the same 
cohorting issues that uh, or, or cohorting rules that we have now uh, or is that does that become a moot point because they're being exposed to other people elsewhere anyway i mean when we think back to why all of these rules are in place it's to try to limit uh, extraneous contact and, and reduce variables so that if an outbreak does occur it can be contained or addressed quickly and um, you know the more variables you introduce the harder that gets personally um, and this may sound a bit callous or, or reckless but it, it's not uh, at least I don't think it is I, I would like to see a return to full school if we're gonna have the risk of um, you know, if we're going to have the risk of, of having kids go back, which, you know, we need to do. And you've heard many people say that, you know, the only way to get the economy back is to make sure kids are in, in school full time because we've seen what happened to parents trying to work. Not to say that people who don't have kids uh, don't have their challenges as well during COVID, but given the, the kind of skewing of the population towards working parents in, in, the, in the workforce, it's a huge issue. And so, you know, what I was going to say is personally, I would like to see them go back full time and simply do our best with respect to social distancing. And if it means for me, for instance, not seeing grandparents for a while, um, you know, that's great. And if there is a second wave, then, then we do what we can. You know, once the risk is introduced, uh, why have, you know, all or most of the risk with a quarter or half of the benefit of, of having them back in school? and then perhaps even <laughs> increase the risk by uh, having different days and, and different offsets with childcare and, and all kinds of stuff. And that's not necessarily something for childcare operators to deal with right now because we don't know, right? I think as Brendan said, it's, it's an opportunity to at least train staff and continue to operate um, <clears throat> uh, and, and get a feel for what it's like in the you know, quote unquote new normal. Um, and of course, Amy uh, has noted that if you're in a shared space, you can't provide care on those on those remote days, um, you know, which I guess good from a transparency standpoint to know what's allowed. But by the same token, it is not necessarily across the board what happens, nor is it necessarily um, you know, useful for parents either. So there's a lot we still don't know. Um, and, you know, as Lisa notes, parents challenging government, uh, you know, to, to do something, right? And, and you heard Ford say, he's, look, I, I want to get all kids in school five days a week, but we need to, uh, we need to deal with this. So um, that being said, those are my editorial comments. And I do want to make sure that we answer the rest of the questions. But um, before we do that, um, anybody else have anything to say on, on that front? Sorry, I thought I unmuted myself there. I have compiled all the questions from the Q&A function into a number of slides and we'll uh, go through them. Most of them we've been able to address on the fly, so to speak, um, but uh, we'll get a, a couple of new ones or, or ones that we hadn't yet addressed in there. So let me, I will share my screen and then um, amongst the panelists, we can kind of jump in where it, where it makes sense. Um, and you know, I do appreciate the comments made in the chats, and I think we all all agree that um, we need to to protect the well-being of the children and the educators, and it needs to be a, a thoughtful plan. Um, that being said, let's let's move on to the rest of the, the questions. So, uh, let me just set the screen up here for sharing, and here we go. 
<clears throat> so can we rehire staff to set up and then if we need to lay off again in September, do so? In other words, if we can't operate the before and after care programs in the school, so this is addressing the shared space issue, we would need to lay off at that time. Um, certainly, you know, you, you do what you have to do from an operational perspective. And um, you know, at that point, it may still be that that becomes one of the layoffs that Christina talked about under the regulation um, that is COVID related, but not one of the 50.1 protected uh, to leaves. And so if the state of emergency is still in place, then we have that COVID period of six weeks after that emergency declaration is off before it even becomes a layoff. So in terms of being able to do it operationally, I think yes. And you may not even have that ticking clock yet until the state of emergency expires in the six weeks. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts on that, but that's the way I would see that that playing out. Uh, okay. I would so. just I would, sorry to interrupt, Kelsey. I would just say in that situation, just uh, be aware of any uh, you know layoff procedures you may have in a collective agreement. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Uh, the second question we definitely addressed with the symptoms. We did talk about the first question on this slide with respect to the uh, the people wanting to take their vacation, but we didn't talk about this one. And uh, Karen asked this uh, about making different arrangements than normal within the center to limit exposure and to try to maintain all of those social distancing and um, best protocols in terms of reducing or eliminating lunches um, if staff are comfortable and we, we can't accommodate people. Um, under the ESA, you can't eliminate that break, right? As we know, um, after five hours worked, every employee is entitled to that unpaid lunch break. <clears throat> um, additionally, if you have specific uh, terms and conditions of employment under an employment agreement and or your policies that provide for um, lunch times, you will need to address that. Can you change things around? Absolutely. Um, staggering lunches, those kinds of things are allowed. Um, but you, you can't just eliminate a lunch. Um, anybody else have any thoughts or has any, have any of my fellow panelists dealt with kind of the schedule rearranging that has become necessary with, with some of these um, protocols? We may just have to get a little bit creative and do some problem solving with respect to uh, spacing, you know, what kind of space is available for people to take their lunch, things of that nature. But yeah, I would agree we can't, uh, can't eliminate lunches if we would, uh, if doing so would put us offside the Employment Standards Act. So we definitely did address the first question on this slide as well about uh, the childcare and, and being able to offer a space. The second one though, and we, we talked about what happens if somebody's not coming back or trying to not come back from a COVID perspective. Um, informing CRA or Service Canada, I mean, I get what you're getting at with this question. I think though, the bigger issue is, what are you doing as an employer to address that? Are you taking that job abandonment position? In which case, you're gonna issue an ROE. And as we know, um, the CERB requires someone to be able to say, to attest to the fact that they have not voluntarily uh, quit or left employment and that there's not um, you know, work available for them. So in, in that sense, it's kind of, um, you know, if you make that decision to terminate employment, they're not going to have that 
access to to serve anyway and and if you as the and, and we expressed this concern at um, earlier on or at least at some point during the pandemic about people who would say hey you know what i don't want to come to work i'd rather just sit home and, and collect serve and you know while there may not be a specific way or mechanism for employers to be targeted i, I would worry about some exposure for an employer who is um, who could be seen to be complicit in um, defrauding the government with respect to serve um, based on the need to say i don't have work available and i didn't voluntarily quit anybody else has any other thoughts but that my my thought is frankly that you know uh the, it's the federal government who is creating and providing and, and, and administering the uh, CERB uh, process. The application for CERB is not very onerous. Uh, and, you know, the government says they're, they're going to uh, track down on, on people inappropriately uh, collecting CERB. And, and you know, if, it, if it's done fraudulently, there could even be penalties for it above and beyond repayments. I don't really see this as the employer's place. To uh, be making to to be you know reporting employees to the government and I have had that question come up a lot. I've, I've had lots of questions come up about you know what do we do about employees on serve and, and my my kind of overall feeling is that's between the employee and the government whether the employee uh, assesses that they are eligible to apply for it. Um, you know my my feeling very generally is as an as the employer, we do what's right for, for the employer. We do what's right for the operation, for the business. And, uh, you know, kind of want to stay out of uh, that relationship between the employee and the government. Uh, that's my overarching feel. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there, Mike. I, I wasn't suggesting that we should be trying to prevent people. But I think what I what my intention with my comments was, was to say simply that if somebody's refusing to come back, and in your view as an employer, they don't have a valid reason, then, you know, you should take action because if they just sit out there and collect serve and then try to come back when they didn't before, um, you know, there may be issues at, at that point. So I would say, you know, get some advice and determine whether or not you have a, a valid case for termination. And then, like Mike said, it's, it's between um, the employee and, and the government as to whether or not they are eligible for and collect or after you've taken whatever action you're going to take as an employer. Yeah, then I guess the other aspect of that is whether to issue an amended record of employment or to issue a record of employment if one has, or, or how to issue a record of employment if one hasn't been issued yet. And obviously there are circumstances in which that's uh, appropriate to do. Um, but, but, you know, and, and I agree with you, Kelsey, uh, certainly, you know, dealing with an employee employee who's not coming back uh, is, is the primary concern, maybe the exclusive concern for the employer, um, you know, and, and in terms of communicating with the government, I would just leave that, do that through your, your record of employment that has to be. Okay. So we, we got a follow up going back to the, the uh, staggered lunches question. Um, Karen's saying, okay, well, we don't have the space to do that. Can we ask them to take their lunch off site? Um, You've got a huge staff there, I see, with 30 staff and only three at a time in the staff room. You can't schedule that. And I think that's Mike's, you know, Mike's right. The, the creative um, problem solving is something that uh, that's going to be necessary there. And 
I think Karen would be happy to to chat with you about potential uh, ways to do it. I think you can certainly ask them to take lunch off site. I think what the problem you run into is logistics around that as well. And how long, how long do they have? Where can they go to be safe and safely distance? How much responsibility do you have as an employer? Um, if you're making those arrangements to ensure that there is a clean, safe space for them and so on, right? Uh, a lot of considerations and obviously, you know, par for the course in, in, in this day and age in terms of trying to figure out how to meet all of the uh, onerous requirements. <clears throat> Keep going with the slides here. Uh, oh, I'm just gonna, no. Do we continue benefits during the accommodation? We address that. Um, likewise, yes. So the first two we addressed. The third one, um, simply put, no, there's, there's no obligation to pay an employee who is quarantined by virtue of the quarantine rules under the legislation, the federal legislation, um, or for that matter, under a recommendation from the public health authorities in the province. You may be able to based on whatever you as an employer decide with respect to uh, wage subsidy and so on, especially if they're able to do some work from home. Um, but strictly speaking, you do not have a legal obligation to pay someone even if you send them home because um, either tested positive or failed the screening to come back. I mean, these are the protocols that are in place and, and that's what it is. Everybody knows um, what the deal is. This one came up and I wanted to save this for when we were talking about funding concerns. Is it legal or ethical to pay employees a bonus when they return uh, after an unpaid infectious disease leave? Well, uh, based on my understanding of the operator's agreements with the funders, at least in the city of Toronto, um, bonuses for employees are not allowed. Um, likewise, we saw in the latest version, or at least the last version that I saw of the Toronto Children's Services Q&A, um, I think it was question 25 or 26 that addressed the idea of pandemic pay. And so the, um, you know, the funders made it clear that they're not providing any kind of top up for that. So that is kind of off the table. Um, is there a way to do it down the road? Perhaps. Um, but you know, on, on the face of it, there doesn't seem to be a way to, to make up for that, um, that shortfall, um, unless there's some kind of retroactive recall that you could do. But if they're on an unpaid leave, they're on an unpaid leave they get their serb and, and they come back. And unfortunately that's, that's the way. Kelsey, would your, your answer to that change if the money to pay the bonus is not coming from uh, the funders? If it's a, I see it, a, a comment just came through, it could be a private uh, daycare. Uh, so if there are otherwise the funds available to give someone a bonus, like a retention bonus, does that change your response? Yeah, that, that might, Mike. That's a good uh, good question. Um, and thank you, Leslie, for, for clarifying that. Um, I, I don't think then that you have any issue with respect to the, the legality or ethical requirements there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, in terms of whether it's legal and ethical, um, I, I don't see a problem. I, I mean, certainly in other industries, Retention bonuses are an option, and, and we've prepared some for certain clients and in other industries. 
you know, we, we, we have to lay you off for this time, but we, once we're allowed to reopen, we certainly want you to come back. And if you do, there's going to be a bonus in it for you. We've done that in certain circles. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of two different questions. Um, you know, can we afford it with, with our sources of, of revenue? On the one hand, is a little bit different from, you know, whether it's legal to do. I think the question of whether it's legal to do uh, is definitely going to come into play if you have a collective agreement. Uh, an employer is not allowed to unilaterally and independently give bonuses or, or payments or, or compensation to uh, employees that were not bargained with the union. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if that's on the table for you, a way to do it could be, you know, doing a, a letter of understanding to append to the collective agreement saying we want to do this, re, re, you know, retention bonus. Uh, and if, if the union is on board, then there you go. Uh, otherwise, no, you can't. Other than that situation, uh, you know, I, I don't off the top of my head see why it wouldn't be uh, something you could legally do. Sorry, I had to unmute myself there. Thank you, Mike. Um, I saw a couple of other questions. I know we've come to the end of the, the ones that I was able to get back onto the slide uh, or back onto the slides. Um, Charles, you had mentioned to me you, you wanted to uh, address the questions that came through the, the Q&A. Yeah, so just looking here. So um, are we talking about the recall of staff? Yes, please. There, there was a recall of staff and then, um, and then the one about uh, asking for a doctor's note as well. Sure. Yeah, so recalling staff may depend, it may vary um, center to center, depending on what you have in place, whether you have a policy or a collective agreement or whatever the case may be, but there, there really aren't any rules. Um, generally, you would want some sort of formal communication that goes out to all employees that maybe lays out how you want to do it. And how you decide to do it is going to depend on a number of things. You may, so you may be required to take seniority into account if you're under a collective agreement or something else of that nature. You may just want to take seniority because you might want your people back. Um, it, it's going to depend on the types of services that you're providing, how different that is from your normal services. Um, so you can be selective in who you actually recall if there's nothing else stopping you from following a specific procedure. You just want to make sure that you're being transparent and that you are communicating them clearly and effectively to everybody. And with respect to a doctor's note, so if you have someone who's just making a bald claim that they cannot come back to work for health reasons, then absolutely you can, any, any kind of request to be away from work or accommodation on the basis of health reasons, you can always go back and ask. You cannot necessarily ask them what their specific issue is, but you can um, seek from the doctor generally what the nature of the ailment is, how long it's likely to last, what restrictions are, so if they have to be away from work or if they can work under accommodated circumstances. All of that is information that you can ask for. And as you kind of go along, if, if the issue um, you know, remains and they're not getting better and it's getting more and more difficult to work with them, then you're in, you increasingly become entitled to more detailed information. So you kind of have to make that assessment as you go along. But absolutely, if someone's claiming they have a health reason for not being in the workplace, um, you can go back and ask for specific information. And then again, just to avoid the kind of blanket, vague doctor's note that we've been talking about, you can go back to the employee and request the doctor describe generally what the issue is, 
ask for a timeline and ask for what restrictions um, the health issue may pose for whether they're at work. And then you can deal with, you know, if you can have this person working from home, that's great. If they just need to be off for a certain amount of time, then that's great too. To the extent that you do grant time off, you want to make sure that it's not just a blanket, you can be away from the workplace. You want to be able to have checkpoints so that, you know, we're granting you a leave until such and such date, at which point we'll, you know, reconnect and see if anything's different. And if it's not, then you grant another specified leave and you just want to make sure that you keep um, checkpoints and keep following up with employees and that kind of thing. I would add, sorry, Christina, why don't you go ahead first? Uh, so I just wanted to jump in very quickly and just note that absolutely agree with Charles with respect to accommodation. Uh, just to keep that differentiation we've been having throughout our webinar today for the infectious disease emergency leave, which will still come into play, uh, you are not permitted to ask for a doctor's note to support an entitlement to that leave. Of course, you are entitled to a note for anything related to accommodation or return to work, just not to support the leave itself. Yeah, actually, yeah, excellent point. So the first step in any, make sure you understand what they're asking for leave for, and this connects back to what Christina was saying before. Employees, you know, they, they may not know what, you know, the difference between an accommodation leave and an ESA leave. If they're gonna to come to you and say, I need to be away from work, first step, go back and make sure you know what it is they're claiming. So if my answer was based on just purely accommodation, so they may not qualify for an ESA leave, they just think I have a health issue, I need to be accommodated. So that's the, um, the answer there. If they're coming to you and saying, I qualify for this leave under the ESA, you need to make sure you're checking what the entitlements and obligations of an employee are under that specific leave. So thanks for bringing that up. Thank you, Charles. And then, Christina, one more question related to the uh, leaves. Um, and it's just kind of going back. Susan uh, has asked for clarification um, with respect to the accrual of vacation and or sick time if somebody's on a COVID emergency leave. Can you just give us a quick recap of that uh, discussion? Sure, absolutely. Um, so first, if you're a unionized center, uh, look to your collective agreement first, see what it says with respect to unpaid leaves. Um, otherwise, the normal rules of the Employment Standards Act would apply uh, so that vacation pay is tied to the time worked. Um, and, and as Charles said, if there's a benefit that is related to time worked, that would not be occurring during a leave. Uh, again, subject to any terms of your collective agreement if you're a unionized center. Perfect. Thanks, Christina. And then uh, one last one. Um, Brendan, do we know if we can pay that 25% top up that's coming from, say, for instance, Toronto Children's Services? Do we know if we can pay that retroactively if the employer is currently um, paying only the 75% that, that they get through the wage subsidy? Uh, that's a great question. I do not know the answer to that, but I will get back to whoever asked it um, directly if that works. Um, I, I need to actually just be sure that I get that right before saying it. No, absolutely. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, not at all. Not at all. That's uh, it's a good question, though. So I, I will connect you with Lisa if you have her contact yet to that directly. And, and what we can do then is... You know, as Brendan said, at some point in the not too distant future, we we will look at some more information about how the wage subsidy will work and how other things might look going forward. So stay tuned for the next one um, as we we progress down the road here. We'll see what comes next on this crazy ride. 
And um, what I did want to do is just, in the meantime, share with you our contact information. If questions come up, we're more than happy to speak with you at any time. You'll see in a moment our contact info for the panelists there. And I apologize, Brendan, you're not on there. But if you don't know Brendan and his firm yet, they do great work with a lot of um, our mutual clients as well as an, a number of childcare operators and particularly prominent in the not-for-profit sector. So really appreciate having you to lean on, Brendan. My uh, pleasure. Thanks for coming with us today. And uh, as we said, you will be able to find our materials from uh, such as they are. It's going to be a video and you will get to relive this in all its glory. You'll be able to find that on our website at www.ccpartners.ca. Check under the broadcasts tab where we will post as soon as we can video of today's webinar. As I said, I think it's our eighth COVID-related webinar and uh, something like our 18th or 19th video episode altogether. We will also post an audio-only version on our uh, of in podcast form, and you can get that through our webpage or through any of the usual podcast providers, whatever your preference may be. And uh, otherwise, I think I'd just like to say thank you to all of our attendees and thank you, of course, to my colleagues and fellow panelists, Christina, Charles, Mike, and of course, Brendan as well. Thank you, everybody, and uh, have a great day. Enjoy the sunshine and get ready for the next heat wave as well. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.